Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, the Ford government has laid out a four-year plan to address Ontario's housing crisis, but many critics say the plan abandons many of the province's own recommendations. We'll discuss that. Crystal Gomancing, who is the European Bureau Chief for Global News, joins us from the Vatican to give us the latest on what's going on with the meetings between the Pope and Canadian Indigenous delegations. And are we headed towards a sixth wave of COVID-19? A lot of experts think we are. As the war in Ukraine drags on, Russian tankers carrying crude oil and petroleum products are increasingly disappearing from tracking systems. Where's all that oil going? We'll get into that as well. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. I want to get into an issue that's, uh, well, it's going to be a key issue in the municipal elections coming up. It's certainly going to be a key issue in the provincial election, and that's housing, or affordable housing more specifically. And there are so many different uh, ways that we can go on this particular. There's, uh, of course, supportive housing. Uh, there's just making a house affordable for the average family. And, of course, we can go down a number of other roads. Well, the government came up with their game plan yesterday. Uh, it's called More Homes for Everyone Plan. And this, as uh, they told us yesterday, is really a collaboration between a number of different uh, focus groups uh, and uh, people that were involved in the housing industry. And this is this is their plan going forward. And it's, uh, it's getting mixed reviews uh, from some people, depending on their perspective, I guess. But the overriding question is, is it going to be effective? Is it really going to address the housing crisis? We're going to talk about some of the points in the proposed plan and uh, get some perspective. And I'm going to open the lines up also later on this hour and, uh, and get your thoughts on this. I mean, we're all impacted by this. I mean, you know, communities all around Ontario, uh, first of all, we're dealing with people that are still living in temp- tent encampments in various parks. Uh, there aren't enough homes. We're not building enough homes. Uh, the ones that are sitting on the market right now are unaffordable to so many people these days. I want to bring Michael Collins-Williams into the uh, conversation. Uh, Michael, of course, has been a guest on the show many times talking about this very issue. He is the uh, chief executive officer of the West End Home Builders Association. Uh, Michael, a pleasure to have you back on the show. Thanks for joining us today. Morning, Bill. Thank you for having That's me. A, well, it's important stuff because this is the game plan and uh, and going forward. And, you know, we've talked in the past about some of the collaborations that have gone on. There was the, the task force that was set up some months ago, and they came up with a whole slew of recommendations. Uh, a number of different uh, people with interest in this project have come forward on this. Uh, what's what's your first blush, uh, your, your opinion on, on what the government is proposing here? Is it a good idea, bad idea? Well, I think the Provincial Housing Affordability Task Force really hit the nail on the head that we need to build more homes and uh, more homes on the market in Hamilton and right across Ontario will give everyone a fair shot at uh, attaining a home and building a future. But for the last several years, uh, with rapid population growth, we've just not been building enough homes to, to keep up with growing demand. And this is exactly why bold provincial intervention to reduce red tape and bureaucratic inefficiencies while speeding up the process is quickly is critically needed. So the measures proposed in Bill 109 yesterday, you know, they're not revolutionary. Uh, I still think a lot more needs to be done, but they do certainly move the needle in the right direction. So the West End Home Builders Association were, were supportive of the wide range of measures proposed by the provincial government yesterday in the More Homes for Everyone plan. And we're certainly encouraging all the political parties to support the quick passage of the legislation because the, the writ will be dropped for the election soon. So it's not even certain that these will pass before the election, uh, and we really need action now. 
And and not surprisingly, of course, uh, both opposition leaders, uh, Stephen Del Duca for the Liberals and Andrew Horvath, uh, say there are major holes in this. And Mike Schreiner from the Greens all suggesting that uh, they've they've got some concerns and say it doesn't go far enough. Uh, They seem to be focused on things that aren't really priorities. Uh, We'll get into that a little bit later on. But your concern, I think, is, is, is very important to this aspect. I mean, there are, you know, there is a process, first, second, third reading and have it passed. Now, yes, this is a majority government, but there's not a whole lot of time here, is there, Michael? We've got about five weeks left. Uh, the bill was just tabled yesterday. Uh, the legislative process uh, is typically fairly slow. I mean, it is possible for it to pass. And uh, I do think the More Homes for Everyone Act does propose some smart, targeted policies for the immediate term that would make housing fairer for hardworking Ontarians to get more housing built. Um, is it a silver bullet? No. Addressing the housing crisis, it's it's a long-term strategy that's really going to require a long-term commitment and partnership from all levels of the government. That's the, the federal, provincial, and municipal, uh, as well as the housing in- industry. So we still have a long way to go, um, but I think the upcoming provincial election is it's going to be very housing-focused, and it will be very interesting to see uh, how all political parties navigate and, and what they propose for the people of Ontario. Well, yeah, and that's an important part. I mean, let's assume, for instance, things do go the way the government wants them to, and this does get passed into law. Uh, you know, first week of June, if you don't like it, you can vote for another party, and come, as I'm sure they're going to bring alternative proposals. But let's deal with what's in front of us right now. As, as you and I have talked about in past discussions, uh, this is not a singular issue. It's not just, hey, the province needs to do more, the feds need to... This, the municipal level has a, has a key role to play here, and I know one of the things that you and your organization have been concerned about for quite some time now is the red tape, and that's at the municipal level for an awful lot of these issues right now. Do you think that was addressed properly with this legislation? I think the legislation makes a start. Uh, there's some targeted changes to uh, timelines for zoning, timelines for a process called site plan control. So, you know, this is getting a little bit technical into uh, some planning policy, but it can take years to get housing uh, approved, especially uh, infill housing uh, and intensification, the very type of housing that a lot of politicians in Hamilton are talking about how we need more of it. But our, our zoning in Hamilton is not up to date. It doesn't permit uh, a lot of the missing middle type of housing that we need uh, or even the types of intensification downtown or along the LRT. So uh, there's a lot of work to be done, but uh, a couple of the things in the legislative package um, are designed to sort of light a bit of a fire under municipalities that in the past, uh, if a municipality failed to meet a legislative deadline, there wasn't really a penalty, uh, a, a development applicant, uh, applicant, a proponent, you know, they could appeal um, a non-decision of a municipality, but then you got to wait a year just to get a hearing date. So I think there's two things in the package that will help speed things up. Um, one, they're investing uh, $19 million into additional resources in the Ontario Lands Tribunal. This is the third-party appellant body that... Uh, Here's uh, issues around housing. Um, there's a massive backlog there. There's probably 70 or 80,000 units across Ontario that are just sitting in a backlog uh, waiting for a trial date, waiting for a hearing date. So we're encouraged that there's going to be more resources put there to deal with that backlog. And if a uh, housing proponent wants to make an appeal, you know, if they know they've only got to wait three or four months, they might make a, a decision to appeal an application. Whereas today, 
if you've got to wait 12, 13, 14 months, you may not want to go down that route. So that is a positive to try to deal with the backlog and to try to get more units approved faster. It's it's a two-sided coin because I know that, you know, the holdup can also be at the political level, and I've seen that happen too many times. I think I related the story a year or so ago, but uh, way back when, when I was on Hamilton Council, uh, there was a, a development plan. It was a multi-residential plan that was out. And uh, as you know, the process is, as everybody in the neighborhood get, is, you know, sent a notice, hey, if you have any concerns. Well, there's one individual. This was not my ward, by the way. It was another part of the city. One individual that, that had a problem with it. Uh, and, that, and, and the councillor in that area held this up for almost a year uh, just to try to placate this one individual. And, you know, they ended up saying, okay, we'll put a fence on the other side of it where there's a, a park. And that you're happy. But in the meantime, the time is money. This is a year that went with absolutely nothing getting done. I mean, there's there's got to be, uh, as you mentioned, some timelines in this uh, to say, okay, you know what? There's going to be a penalty if you guys are going to hold this up for not really a, a valid reason. And that's that's I think one of the things that I've heard from you and other people in the industry and housing advocates too, is sometimes the council's job is to get out of the way, and and you know, they, they don't necessarily have to do that under the current plan. You know, planning is inherently political. Uh, people often don't like change in their neighborhoods, uh, but with the rate of growth that we have coming, change is inevitable. And, you know, this is why planning has become so political. And I'd, I'd use the word, the politics sometimes are toxic. And there seems to be a perception uh, that just because one lives in a neighborhood that they have a veto over anybody else being able to come into that neighborhood or live in that neighborhood. Um, and, and that has built up not just in Hamilton, but across Ontario, and we find ourselves in a, a crisis where uh, the cost of housing has just gotten completely out of control uh, because there is a massive imbalance between the supply of housing actually being built or the supply of housing come, uh, being turned over through the resale market versus what the demand is. And, and we've seen a bit of a flight from the GTA uh, where younger people, people starting families, uh, just can't afford to live in uh, Toronto, Peel, York and and they're all moving to sort of the next ring out, you know, the Hamiltons, the the Berries and, and the Oshawas. And that's then displacing people in the community here who can't afford to live in Hamilton anymore. And and they're moving further out to communities like Tilsonburg, St. Catharines in, in London. So it's a bit of a cascading effect across Ontario. And this is why we need provincial intervention. We need bold provincial intervention to uh, reform our policies on how we approve housing and how we get housing built uh, because the politics and the red tape are really um, it's it's an albatross it's really dragging the system uh, and it's making it very difficult to get more housing built when we talk about affordable housing that phrase probably conjures up an image in people's minds uh, depending on their perspective but uh, you know and it can be hey what about those people that are living in encampments right now can we get them something where there's a roof over their head and i understand that and i know some municipalities are being creative about that you know alleyway homes and these tiny little mini homes that, that they're putting up sometimes they look like garden sheds but it's it's not the solution but it could be part of it but the key thing that i found uh, in talking to people in your industry michael it's not just that we need to build houses it's where we build them uh, because if, if people don't want to live there and if they don't want to live in that kind of house they're still going to go someplace else and find something that's affordable for them and i know that gets into the, the realm of urban boundaries and, and the kind of housing and multi-residential and everything else but that all has to be part of the discussion and, and i know it's uncomfortable for a lot of people but it's got to happen because you know if if we start excluding some of those topics then we're not going to get a, a, a solution that's going to be pleasing to everybody or it's going to be effective 
you know, housing is a continuum, right? From uh, luxury housing at one end to to um, providing affordable housing and supportive housing and trying to get people out of the encampments and, and homelessness at the other end. Uh, and there's a whole area in the middle, and I'll use the word attainable housing rather than affordable housing. And the middle class is getting squeezed. Um, you know, it used to be that you you go to school, you work hard, you play, uh, you know, you play by the rules. Um, you'll be able to afford a starter home, get into the market, um, you know, continue saving at a certain point, get that move up home. Uh, there's sort of this this ladder uh, that people move through the housing continuum. Um, but that ladder has been broken. Um, we are, you know, the housing system right now is not functioning properly. Um, and a lot of people I'm concerned are becoming disenfranchised. Uh, a lot of people are starting to lose hope as to whether they'll be able to, um, you know, get into that starter home uh, and start building wealth and, and create sort of a, a nest for their family to grow. Uh, and that's, again, why we need strong provincial intervention. Uh, we need municipalities to take uh, the situation more seriously, and, and we need help from the federal government. So the legislation tabled yesterday is a start. It does need move the needle in the right direction, uh, but there, there's more work to be done. I got a minute or so left here. I got to ask you because there was a companion piece to this, and that was the announcement. Uh, I guess it was the day before by the finance minister uh, Bethan Falvey uh, about the foreign home buyers tax, and of course they've increased it and they made it a, a province-wide rule now, as opposed to simply over in the GTA. And I'm hearing from an awful lot of people in the industry, in the real estate industry, that's saying that you don't need it here. It's it's a Toronto problem, a Vancouver problem. It's not really a problem anywhere else. As a matter of fact. I, one person who was a housing advocate suggested it actually could be detrimental to, uh, for instance, students who come here to go to school. May end, and, and some of them in places like London and Hamilton, they buy a house and maybe rent part of it out. And when they're finished their schooling, five, six, seven years long, they sell the house, usually at a profit, and they use that to pay off their student loan. They're going to get nailed with that tax now simply because they're, they're foreign students. So I, I, I'm wondering if that's really going to create more problems that it's going to solve. You know, it may be a temporary measure during the current uh, situation in which uh, housing has become uh, so difficult to afford um, in terms of uh, money coming into Canada. It's primarily Vancouver and Toronto where there is that um, yeah. foreign investment. Um, is there foreign investment in Hamilton? There's probably some, but uh, this kind of taxation change is, is not going to have a huge impact um, so what they've done is they, they've increased it from 15% to 20%, and they've closed a few loopholes in what you mentioned was the foreign students. So previously, uh, students coming in and studying from overseas um, uh, were exempt from uh, the tax. That has been changed, uh, where now they would have to pay the tax. However, if they stay in the country, they put roots down, and they become a, non, uh, a permanent resident, uh, they can apply for that rebate afterwards. So the the idea here is to try to reduce the amount of investment coming from outside. But if people do put down roots and they do stay, uh, that they will be eligible for that rebate. Um, so that's, there's, there's that's a, one uh, tweak. Exactly. Uh, there's a lot more to come. This is not the end of this conversation, certainly, just because the legislation is probably the beginning of the next chapter of it. So uh, many more discussions to come on this, Michael. Thanks, as always, for joining us today. I really appreciate your input. 
thank you for the opportunity. Take care. Michael Collins-Williams, who is the uh, Chief Executive Officer of the West End Home Builders Association, and their perspective on this new legislation. This is the Ford government's plan going forward to try to address the housing crisis. And it's, uh, as as we've just talked about here, it's just about at every level. I mean, the middle class, they can't afford places, uh, starter homes, there's not enough of those. Uh, they think they've got a template here for this to work. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Of course, uh, we've all been watching uh, the interaction in the Vatican over the last couple of days uh, with a number of indigenous groups over there to meet with the Pope. Another meeting took place earlier this morning. And uh, we're watching with great interest to see exactly what's going to be happening. And more importantly, I guess, what the Vatican may do about uh, what has happened in the past and, and what's going on now. And uh, everyone is watching. And of course, uh, MPP Sol Mamakwa uh, from Ontario uh, is watching the developments from home, of course. And he says he's hopeful that Pope Francis does come to Canada. It's important that uh, this lead this process, the visit, I guess, just regarding the visit, like, uh, you know, sometimes I wonder why are we the ones uh, doing all the work of reconciling? Should be the Vatican reconciling with us, not the other way around. You know, the Pope should be coming to Canada asking for forgiveness, and the sooner the better that would happen. Before that happens, uh, the Pope must actually revoke the 1493 Papal Bowl, and, uh, which speaks about the doctrine of discovery. And our people were never barbaric. We're not savages running in, around the forest, but we're human beings. And, and that was the tone, I think, for an awful lot of the people that have already had meetings, include Métis leaders who were there at the beginning of the week, and, and another delegation, as we mentioned, uh, that were there. Uh, and, and looking for closure in, in so many different ways, because there's so many different aspects to this, this very, very... Uh, tough situation that we need to deal with here you know the, the discovery of, of you know unmarked graves and, and it's happening on a regular basis and probably will be now that the, the spring is coming and the people will be out there investigating again and we've seen this happen in southern ontario certainly in bc and other jurisdictions and culpability and i know that you know the catholic church has been approached about this in the past and has been very reticent to even get involved or talk about this uh there seems to at least now be a willingness on behalf of uh, of the pope to at least have these discussions, and as evidenced certainly by the fact that he is holding audiences, and and as we heard from some of the folks that have been at these meetings, listening to the, to the delegates and listening to their stories, uh, there are survivors that are there that are telling their stories, and that's so very important. I mean, you you need to put a face to to the tragedy, and and I think that's uh, one of the key elements to what's going on uh, in Rome today to understand exactly what's happening and why. And there are going to be so many other aspects to this, too. To bring us up to speed on this, uh, Crystal Gomancing, who is the uh, European Bureau Chief for Global News, uh, is in the Vatican, and she joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show to uh, give us her perspective. Crystal, I know how busy you are. Thank you so much for jumping in for a few minutes today. Hi there. Very compelling. Global National last night, the uh, the report you did, uh, where you talked with Phil Fontaine, of course, the, the former uh, Associate Federation of uh, Chief, uh, who's been there before, as you mentioned in your report, but he's... I, what I sensed in there is not frustration so much, Crystal, but in his conversation, uh, still a lot of hope there. A, a lot of hope. And actually, after he uh, was a part of the delegation, the First Nation delegation today, and, and after that a very long session, it was a two-hour session as opposed to the one-hour meeting that was scheduled, but a number of the delegates came out just to the edge of St. Peter's Square and held sort of a, a, a bit of a briefing and press conference. And, and it was outside there that um, Phil Fontaine had said again that, you know, he is um, still optimistic. They called it a, a special moment and a profound moment, um, acknowledging the fact that, you know, he's, he's been here before in 2009. He spoke with, you know, um, Pope Benedict XVI. Um, but even back then when he was talking about it, he, he 
didn't talk about it in a disappointing way because there wasn't an apology, just said that, you know, it wasn't the right time, more work still needed to be done. Now, a part of the reason that he's optimistic is because not only is there, um, you know, so much um, effort and desire on behalf of, of Indigenous uh, people to get that apology, but he says the world is watching. More non-Indigenous individuals are paying attention, more Canadians are paying attention, and, and people around the world. And even when they were standing on the edge of the square uh, today, you know, crowds were gathering and coming and paying attention, and, and the, the chiefs were making a point of, of um, you know, Gerald Antoine made a point of saying, like, you know, to everybody listening to us right now, this is the story, this is what happened, make sure you know and understand. Um, so it is sort of a, a, a bigger overall push, if I can use that, that wording, to, to, you know, finally come to that next step, which is the formal apology from the Pope. So there is a lot of, of optimism um, at the official briefing we're hearing from from some chiefs right now, and including, um, you know, a, a number of individuals saying, you know, it is now time, Chief Roseanne Kashmir from from uh, Kamloops was talking about the the profound impact that the residential school system has had on on multiple generations. That you know there needs to be um, emotional support for these survivors for their families, and of course it comes down to more information. They need to find out um, you know who all the children are, or still being work being done in those uh, you know uh, unmarked graves that were discovered last year and. And so those efforts continue. So there's a lot of work under the umbrella of, of truth, reconciliation, and healing, and obviously what's happening here in Rome and at Vatican City, a huge part of that. Crystal, as this wraps up toward the end of the week, again, uh, certainly the, an apology is, is something that a lot of us are waiting to see, just when and how that's going to happen. Uh, but there are some other takeaways here, too, as you've been reporting. I mean, even, you know, when they did, in, uh, did the tour of some of the museum pieces there and they saw the, the number of Aboriginal artifacts, there was uh, at that time some indication that they may want to have some sort of repatriation to bring some of those back uh, to Canada as well. Uh, I, I guess the, the question here is, are they going to be able to bring anything back home here? An apology, artifacts, uh, they certainly want records of, uh, of who attended some of these schools, too. Has the Vatican given any indication at all that the, some of that will be forthcoming? At this point, we don't have any indication as to what will come of these meetings. Uh, at this point, yeah, you're right. There were calls on Monday from, uh, you know, the, the Métis delegation talking about the fact that, you know, reconciliation isn't just about words, that it is, is sort of opening the door to walk through. And then it's, you know, access, just even just the access to the documents that the church has to give families a better understanding of, you know, their, their history, what schools did, um, you know, children, uh, were they taken to? Where, what happened to them? Do they have records of, of, of death certificates? Do they have information of, of where the children were buried? So you're right, there is um, a lot of unanswered questions, and there are more asks other than just an apology. That is sort of one of the steps. And, um, you know, we hear about, you know, reconciliation and healing, and, and it's always talked about in terms of a process, and that is something people need to remember. Here, it's not just get the apology; it's done. It is a step that is sort of ongoing and continuous, um, not only for Indigenous people but non-Indigenous people as well. And that's something we've heard. As far as people do seem to have a better understanding today than in 2009, when the previous delegation was here. 
Absolutely. Very much of an evolving story, and we look forward to you reporting, as always, on Global National uh, tonight here at 6.30. Crystal, thank you so much for this. Uh, take care. We'll talk again soon, I hope. All right. Take care. Crystal Gavansing, European Bureau Chief for Global News, who's in the Vatican, been there for the last couple of days, talking uh, to the number of the delegates after they have their meetings uh, with the pontiff. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. If you've been watching the news over the last couple of days, as well as the, the slap in the Oscars and everything else, we've got to be talking about the pandemic, because uh, as the experts told us, it's not over yet. Well, I'm from uh, Dr. Peter Uni, of course, from the Ontario Science Table, is uh, we're not out of the woods. That's what he told us on the program last week. And uh, now there seem to be some indications that uh, there could be a sixth wave. Uh, some even suggest it's already started here in Ontario, especially. So what are we supposed to do about this? Uh, well, to uh, answer that, we're so pleased to welcome back to the program uh, Dr. Don Bodish, who is a tenured professor of pathology and molecular medicine at McMaster University, also uh, Canada Research Chair in Aging and Immunity with the DeGroote Institution for Infectious Disease Research. Uh, doctor, always a pleasure to talk with you. Thanks so much for making some time for us today. Thanks so much, Bill, for having me back. There are, seem to be indications from a, a number of your colleagues that, uh, uh, well, we knew that, that COVID had never really gone away, but that it's starting to come back again, and they're talking about yet another wave. How mm -hmm. concerned should we be about that information? Well, it is very, very concerning. We really haven't recuperated from the last one. We're still trying to catch up on surgeries and missed appointments and screening and all these other things. And certainly, we're already seeing higher absenteeism in our healthcare workers. So when they get sick, you know, they're on the front line. So they're obviously the people at the most risk. And when we start seeing lots of absences, that really does compromise the quality of care. We're seeing that in the long-term care community. We're seeing that in hospitals. We expect that we'll be seeing that with teachers very shortly. So this sort of wave can be extremely disruptive across the board. And and I think it's very much here and among, upon us. And we really need to do what we can to mitigate it. And I know some people are being dismissive. I'm sure you've heard some of those mm -hmm. comments, too. Like, no big deal. If you've been vaccinated, uh, you might feel crappy for a couple of days. Everything's going to be fine. Uh, it's We're not going to do anything until we see hospitalizations and ICU uh, attendance going up. But uh, I, I saw Dr. Bogosh on TV the other day mm -hmm. and talking about this. And he reminded us, of, I think, of a very cogent point. And I wanted to get your read on this. He says, look, at yeah, that's important, you know, hospitalizations, et cetera. But he said, that's what you call a delayed metric. In other words, mm -hmm. by the time those numbers go up, it's already here and it's already having its impact. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And, you know, one of the things that I feel that we really missed because we focused so much on hospitalizations is long-term health consequences that can happen even in people who aren't sick enough to be hospitalized. So we know that three doses, only about 50% of people have them, but those will give you 80 plus percent protection against long COVID or other chronic health conditions associated with having had COVID. They'll make your symptoms more mild, they'll mean fewer days off work, they'll mean you're less likely to spread it to the rest of your family, your workplace, your community. So we really need to focus on getting everyone those third doses to help mitigate both the short-term effects of people being off work and things like that, but also the long-term effects of having our young, healthy, working-aged people have to deal with some of these chronic health conditions associated with having COVID. And, and that's something I think you're absolutely right. I think we kind of pushed to the back of our minds, but it's still mm -hmm. there. I saw a, a report on uh, on Global News about two weeks ago now about a rehab center uh, that's actually full to capacity with people that are suffering from, as you say, long-term effects from COVID. And some yeah. of them were never hospitalized. 
but they still have the effects nonetheless. The cardiac problems, the brain fog, uh, a number of different respiratory problems and, and things that we probably haven't paid much attention to because, as you mentioned to in an earlier discussion, we're still learning about this. Uh, but you don't know how this is going to have an impact on you, don't you? No, and it's so devastating to see young people, you know, youngish people, people who are, should still be, you know, working at the school, have this take them out of commission. And certainly even with children, you know, we know that children have more mild infections, so it's more rare, but there's certainly cases of kids who are having long-term health issues as a consequence. And, you know, the acute burn to our hospital care system is bad, but there's also going to be a long-term burn on using all these chronic care services. And we simply don't have a lot of treatments otherwise, other than treating symptoms. So, you know, at St. Joe's, we have rehabilitation and we have a long COVID clinic, but it's really managing the symptoms, not curing uh, anyone of this condition. And that's hard to swallow. That's really hard to swallow because it affects people who should be in their prime. All right, let's have uh, the difficult part of the discussion now, which a lot of people just seem to want to avoid. Mm -hmm. uh, what should we be doing here uh, to, to mitigate the impact this is going to have? Do we go back to wearing masks? Do we go back to, to restrictions on attendance, things of this nature? And that, to some people, is, is a, a non-starter. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, we're, we're dealing with a pandemic here. And, you know, I think one of the, the miscommunications with the, the restriction lifting is, people really felt that things were being lifted because it was safe. And so they really felt comfortable going back to doing the things they would have liked to do prior to this. But that's not why restrictions were lifted. We were at the same rates when they were lifted as we were early December, and we know how that turned out. They were lifted because they're divisive. Uh, they were lifted because it's politically very challenging to keep them in place. Uh, and the hope was that people wouldn't need to be told to keep their mask on or to socialize outdoors or to do whatever, that they would choose to do it voluntarily. And that messaging, not only was it lost, but it really relies on all of us to become public health experts and to really be able to judge and mitigate our own risks. And I think that's a little bit unfair. I'll certainly be keeping my mask on going indoors for sure. I'll try to do as much of my socializing outside as possible once the weather permits. And uh, certainly keep getting up to date on those vaccines will be incredibly helpful. That's a point that I guess another one that we've lost in this, isn't it, doctor? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the, our vaccination rate is, 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 you know, incredible. That's nice. And the uptake on that and uh, the number of people that have had, well, three doses, I guess, the, you know, mm -hmm. two plus the booster is wonderful. But it's not 100 percent yet. Mm -hmm. uh, and there's still some people that just have not done that. And, you know, as, as my family doctor said, it's never too late to start. Uh, you know, mm -hmm. even if you haven't had your first dose, go get it. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And even our third doses, you know, I really feel like we didn't get our messaging right. I still run into people all the time who think that third doses are for sick people. And as a healthy person, they don't need that third dose. And that's bad messaging on our part. And it's going to be bad messaging as we move towards fourth doses for some people as well. I mean, really, our messaging should be that you need to, everyone with an Omicron needs to have at least three doses, if not more. And that will protect, like I said, from the long-term health consequences, for make that infection more mild, make it less likely to share it with your family members, make you know less likely to take time off work. And we really need to keep pushing that message. We also need to push for kids. I mean, I am sure you and every other parent uh, or every other one of your listeners who's a parent has, has, is struggling with kids bringing home infections from their school right now. And parents have been a little bit resistant uh, to getting their kids vaccinated. And as a result, a lot of those infections do stem from kids and then they bring them home to their families. So getting everyone as vaccinated as they can be will help slow this down and hopefully make this wave a lot less disruptive than the last one.
But you're right. I think there were some mixed signals, or maybe people were looking for mm -hmm. mixed signals. I guess when uh, you know when Dr. Moore d decided to lift a, a number of these mm -hmm. restrictions with his announcement, mm -hmm. but you know, which accompanied him saying, "Well, we're not going to do any more updates. Uh, we don't need to do those anymore. Uh, we're going to do less testing uh, than we did before." As, and the numbers that seem to indicate that uh, that we've got a problem here are coming from wastewater signals. Of course, mm -hmm. that that testing has been ongoing. Uh, and we're not doing enough. So as, as difficult as it might be to suggest or even admit that there's going to be a sixth wave or it's already started, we have already kind of put this in a rearview mirror. And that, I, I think that's problematic. Yeah, this weird desire to say it's over, it's over, it's over. Let's get back to our old life is we have to remember we're not in charge here. The virus is in charge. And, you know, ignoring it doesn't make it go away. So the other issue with not having enough testing is a lot of our antiviral medications really only work on the first day or two. You know, you really have to get that test and get those antivirals lickety split. So if we don't have enough testing or people are finding it challenging to get a test, then that puts us all in a really awkward position because one of the tools in our toolbox doesn't work. And so having testing be available and letting people know that they can and should get tested so that they have access to these antiviral medications is another message that I think has been completely lost in this hurry to, to lift restrictions. Exactly. Uh, doctor, always a great pleasure to have you on the program and give us some perspective on this. Thanks so much for the stay well, and we'll talk again soon. Absolutely. Take care. Bye-bye. Take care. Dr. Don Bodish, of course, uh, from uh, McMaster University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. More than five weeks into the war in Ukraine, Russia now claiming to be scaling back military operations in some parts of the country to promote what they call trust between the two sides. But as uh, reporter M. Wynn says, U.S. intelligence tells another story. The Pentagon says only about 20% of Russian forces around Kyiv are moving away from the capital, and they're apparently just repositioning. Russians continue to bombard the suburb of Irpin. ABC's James Longman is there. As you can hear, the war rages, and this, this is one of the areas that the Russians say they are now going to leave. But as you can hear, there are no signs of this war stopping. Uh, as we've heard in an update of reports even from there, too, that the shelling continues. There's another side to the story, too, which I find intriguing. We know that there are sanctions that have been put on uh, by the United States and other NATO countries, uh, especially when it comes to Russian oil. Uh, but an interesting sidebar to this right now, uh, it seems that uh, a lot of the tankers that are carrying Russian oil are disappearing. Uh, in other words, the tracking systems are being turned off, which begs the question, where are they and where's that oil going? Uh, and does that make the sanctions that are being imposed right now moot? I want to bring Ian Lee into the conversation, associate professor at the Spot School of Business at Carleton University. Ian, great to have you back in the program. Thanks for jumping on with us today. My pleasure, Bill. Forgive my skepticism, but are you surprised by this story that they're just turning off the tracking systems and going where they want? No, no, I'm not. Um, I, I think what they're doing, and, and just to be clear, uh, I mean, my first reaction was they're, they're breaking the sanctions, but then I thought, wait, wait a minute. The oil and gas are exempt from the sanctions, okay, by and large. They're exempt from the sanctions, and I don't want to get down to the weeds. There might be some specialized parts, but by and large, they did exempt it because Europe needs uh, oil and gas so badly. So then the question is uh, very, you know, immediately uh, jumps to mind. Well, if they're, they can sell the oil and gas legally, why are they trying to hide it? Well, the answer, it seems to me to be very logical that some of the buyers don't want to be identified as, as buying Russian oil. Russian oil, uh, R Russia has become so toxic in the world, the court of public opinion, and there's just enormous amounts of evidence for this. Uh, the hundreds of companies that are self-sanctioning 
even though they're not required to, because, and they're doing it out of, let's be blunt, self-interest, because no company wants its brand associated with a a country that is bombing children's hospitals, that have children uh, suffering from cancer, uh, bombing senior citizens' buildings, killing elderly people, um, and so forth. It is so horrific. These are, many people believe there's uh, serious war crimes that are being committed. First off, it's you can't bomb civilian uh, apartment buildings. I mean, it's, it's prohibited, and it's happening. And so I think what's happened here, Bill, is, is that there are companies that need, uh, countries, uh, and possibly companies, but certainly countries that need oil, but they do not want to be identified in the court of public opinion as, as, as buying and supporting Russia. And there are two large buyers, I mean mega large, I don't mean a, you know, a barrel or two or a shipper or two here or there. Um, China and India are, are two of the largest buyers of Russian oil uh, alongside the, uh, the European countries. And uh, so I suspect um, the, the country, the, the tankers, the Russian tankers that have turned off their transponders, which is an act illegal in, in and of itself under international marine shipping laws agreed to in international bodies that are bodies of, in the U.N. The U.N. has all kinds of bodies, by the way. Uh, WHO is a U.N. body, and ICAO that regulates airline, the international airline industry is a U.N. body. It's not just the U.N. The U.N. has all kinds of bodies uh, to facilitate the rules of international, everything, trademarks and patents and, and marine shipping, etc. And you're required to have your transponders on. So this is illegal. But, you know, who's going to enforce it? <laughs> uh, but to the question, I think that this is probably, uh, it's going to be big buyers like China and Russia that don't want to be publicly identified as, as uh, buying large amounts of oil from Russia. Yeah, and as uh, as we've mentioned, I mean, there, there could be legitimate reasons why the transponders get turned off for maintenance and things of this nature, but uh, the fact there's a 236% increase uh, in the number of occurrences of that happening can uh, indicate that there's something going on here. Exactly. There's a quote from a marine expert who's in the industry. It says, these vessels, quote, want to disappear. Yeah, well, of course. Uh, and they're and they're doing it because they it would be very deleterious, very negative to their brand, and they're worried about blowback. I mean, remember, I want to get this out again. You know, I've seen some studies or uh, articles saying, well, you know, over half of the world in terms of population don't support the sanctions. That's that's the wrong question, and I'll explain why it's the wrong question. It's what percentage of world GDP supports the sanctions, and it's about 65% of world GDP countries support the sanctions. So what? What's got GDP got to do with it? Well, guess what developing countries want to do? They want to sell to countries that have lots of money. That's the OECD Western countries. You're not trying to sell countries to poor countries that don't have any money to buy your stuff. You're trying to sell to the high-income countries, the wealthy countries, because they've got the money. And so that means the Indias and the Chinas, that's why China is so conflicted. They're, they're buddy-buddy with Russia. But at the same time, they know which side, let's use slang English, they know which side of the bread the butter is on. And the butter is not on the Russian side of the bread. The butter is with the Western Europe and North America and Japan and South Korea and Canada and Australia that represent about $65 trillion out of the $88 trillion world GDP, and that's from the World Bank. That data, I'm quoting you, 
is World Bank data. So the Western countries, which are not 50 uh, uh, over half of the world in population, are about two-thirds of the world in terms of GDP because they're high-income, wealthy countries. And those are the countries that uh, these other countries, developing countries, want to trade with. So they don't want the developed countries, the Western countries, to cut them off after because they say, you know, you are supporting these atrocities by supporting Russia, by buying their oil to give them the cash to, uh, you know, buy more bombs or tanks or missiles or whatever to kill civilians. And that's what they're worried about. So they turn off the transponders so that the countries cannot track who's buying the oil and supporting Russia. Is there some gamesmanship going on here, Ian? I'm, you know, because if you want to say, you know, to answer the question I asked at the beginning here, where's this stuff going? Uh, all you need to do is go over the list of people that have been doing business with Russia for the last years, and, sure. and as you say, China yeah. and India are two of the big ones. But so is Israel, so is France, so is yeah. you know, a number of European countries are doing yeah. this. But the European uh, and it, I, I wonder if I wonder if the the, the situation here is that, is that because I you know Biden and a number of other NATO nations have tried to pressure these guys to say no, don't do this anymore. But it's simply saying, well, if I don't see you doing it, I'm not going to raise it again. Possibly. So turn off the transponder. There might be some wink, wink, nudge, nudge going on. Yeah. I mean, remember, the European countries, it's not secret. It's transparent. They're reporting what they're buying. Sure. And they're heavily, heavily dependent on Russia, which is exactly why they got exempted from the sanctions in the first place. So whether or not they're doing this and the U.S. knows they're doing it, well, I'm sure they do, because you, you just can't hide hundreds of oil tankers. You can't hide a country that's buying hundreds of millions of barrels of oil. I mean, it's just so, so gigantic, and uh, the transactions, that you can't hide these things. You can turn off the transponders so that social media types uh, and uh, the young kid that's tracking the the aircraft of the oligarchs won't won't be able to track the oil uh, tankers. Uh, they're worried, I think, about these independent social media uh, policemen, if I can call it that. These are just people at home who have the technical skills to do this, and they they're trying to immunize themselves in the court of public opinion. In my view because they don't want to get trashed after as, oh, yeah, you are the country that was in bed with Russia uh, blowing up children's hospitals in Ukraine. How could you possibly do something so despicable? They don't want that said about them. And and business goes on in so many other ways. I mean, we're talking about oil uh, production and, and the sales that are going on. But we also know that India is actually one of the, the, the biggest uh, customers, I guess, when it comes to arms shipments uh, from Russia. And given their political situation uh, in India, uh, they're, they're not going to drive that up and say, okay, guys, I'm sorry, we won't do that anymore. Uh, in, it's, in a, it's, this may not be business as usual, but there is still business going on. There's all kinds of cross-cutting currents. You're absolutely right. Um, and I've only learned this in the last few days. I mean, I know that India is a strong ally of the United States. India is terrified of China. It's their next-door neighbor. And they've had all kinds of border incursions over the past 10, 15, 20 years in the Kashmir area. And I'm not going to go into deeper into that. I'm not a geopolitical international relations scholar, but this has been widely reported in the media. So I'm just, this isn't being made up. This is in the New York Times and the Financial Times, the Times of London. It's widely reported that India is is a mortal enemy, if I can put it that way, of, of China. And so they've rearmed themselves, and they're a mortal enemy, by the way, of Pakistan, because they've had long-held border disputes with Pakistan, going back to the uh, independence of Pakistan, which used to be part of, of India. And so they've armed themselves to the teeth with Russian uh, uh, military technology because the Americans weren't willing to arm them up uh, and weapon them up. 
and uh, so they don't want to cut off uh, Russia because they need Russia's arms to protect themselves, they believe, against Pakistan and against China. So that's why they're, uh, and likewise Israel has a, a very strong uh, partnership or relationship, whatever you want to call it, with, with Russia as well. So there are, it's not that they're trying to support what Russia's doing in Ukraine, it's just that they need them. And so for that reason, I think that they're trying to hide their, their um, tacit support for Russia by buying uh, huge amounts of oil, which is going to give them hundreds of millions of dollars. This reminds me very much of, uh, I think, a discussion you and I had was probably about two or three years ago now uh, about the sanctions in North Korea. And there was a strong information, I guess, from U.S. intelligence then that there were tankers uh, that were basically yeah. from China that were supplying North Korea. They, they had said, yeah, we're going to honor the sanctions, but no, they didn't. They just turned the transponder right. off and, and Bob's your That's uncle right. and you're in there. Yeah. Now, there's another I, I, element to this. Go ahead, Ian. First. I was going to say, sanctions are never 100%, and I'm not against sanctions. I believe in sanctions. The, the, the key is that they've got to be mostly supported. And let me be more blunt than that. They've got to be mostly supported by the people with the most money because they're the ones who buy the stuff. That means, guess what? North America, Canada, U.S., Western Europe, Japan, South Korea, Australia, because they are about two-thirds of the world's GDP and wealth. They're the people that buy the stuff. And so sanctions have to be supported by... Now, we can't make China support them. We're not going to invade China because they don't support sanctions. And we know that the world is breaking up again into two blocks, basically. An authoritarian block led by China, and Russia will be in that block, and North Korea, and some other uh, authoritarian countries. And then there's going to be the other block, the Western block, the rule of law block, whatever you want to call it. And then there's going to be the non-aligned block, like India, that's sort of got a foot in both camps. And that's what I see emerging uh, out of this, uh, this horrible event, uh, invasion in uh, Ukraine. Uh, there's another element to this, too, and maybe it's a lot more important than we're giving it credit for. Uh, just looking at some of the, the world markets here, uh, and you're saying, okay, why are these guys doing this in spite of uh, the fact that you know the U.S. has encouraged them not to? Russian oil is cheaper. Uh, Russian crude is trading roughly $30 cheaper than Brett crude yeah. right now. So, uh, and look, we all know of the price of, of, of energy these days. Of course they're going to look for a bargain, aren't they? Yes. And the reason why, for your listeners, you may say, wait a minute, what's going on? Oil is a world price. Yes, it is. However, because Russian oil has become so toxic, Russia has become so toxic, and Russian exports have become so toxic, buyers are doing what? They're saying to Russia, okay, yeah, I understand you need my money. You want to sell your oil to me. But you know what? Uh, this is going to hurt my reputation if it comes out. I'm not willing to pay you market price. I want you to discount your oil to me if you want me to buy it. And so the Chinese, are, it's on, been reported in the Wall Street Journal uh, uh, as well as other reputable publications, the Chinese are buying up the oil because it's a bargain. They're getting 30 bucks off a barrel. Well, instead of paying 100 or 110, they're paying 70 or 80. And that's very attractive if you need a lot of oil in your economy. And India does need a lot of oil. Very large economy, very large country, as does China. So they're seeing this as, my goodness, you know, it's, you know, any one of us, if you're offered 30% off, going and buy a new car, and the sales rep says, you know, it's a very bad week. I'm going to sell you this brand new car, no gimmicks, nothing wrong, never been in an accident. I'm going to give you 30% off. Well, most of us are going to jump at that opportunity to buy something that's, when I say legitimate, it's not fake. It's not, uh, you know, a fake product. It's a real product. And you're being offered 30% off, and you're saying, gee whiz, that, that sounds like uh, an amazing deal to me. And uh, so that, that's the incentive that Russia is using to incentivize people to buy their, quote, toxic oil, is well, they're offering bargains. 
Exactly, and and you know when you're buying it in in that volume, of course, you know, thirty bucks here, thirty bucks there, it certainly adds up when you're looking at these sorts of things. Oh, but it does it does bring into yeah. yeah it does bring into focus you know the efficacy I guess of, of sanctions at all, and 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 your point's well taken. The U.S. has said that they're not importing any Russian oil. We've said the same sort of thing. We don't import a whole lot of it anyway. And they, they as you say, they can't technically tell India stop or no. China to stop. That's right. No, I think the solution in the longer term is, um, and I do believe it is a longer-term solution. It's not going to happen overnight. I don't mean 10 or 20 or 30 years either. I think in the next, I think Europe is, is they're just pounding the pavement, so to speak, metaphorically, night and day, doing workarounds. And I mean workarounds, I'm reading that uh, Gadder and Kuwait and, and Middle East um, uh, oil sheikdoms, they're, they're working the phones and they're, they're pleading and begging and everything to, to buy more and more oil from them. And uh, they're going to try and source oil and natural gas from everywhere but Russia. And I think over the next two, three, four, five years, Russia is going to, uh, they're going to wake up one day, and their most important resource, oil and gas and coal, is going to not be sold. It'll be sold. China will continue to buy it. India will continue to buy it. But uh, I think that they're going to find it's going to, uh, they've lost their most important market and their most valuable market, which is Europe, European Union, very high-income countries. And it, their standard of living, I just read a recent report two days ago by one of the major banks, and they said Russia is looking for the next 10 years at a, an enormous reduction in their standard of living. And their GDP is going to go down, income's going down, their standard of living is going down, and, uh, because they're becoming a pariah state. And, and there will, they will be paying for it for years to come, I think long after they've left uh, uh, Ukraine. What about mineral resources, though? I, I don't want to get too deeply into this. Only got a couple of minutes left, but I mean, you know, the push now towards EVs and, and batteries for these EVs, etc. Uh, and there are only a few places in the world that actually can supply that sort of stuff. Northern Ontario is one of yeah. them, of course. Uh, and Russia apparently has resources for that yeah, too. Are, right. are, are they that forward-thinking that they anticipate that? Well, I think that they thought it was going to be over. I mean, everything, all the articles, all the analyses say that he, he, he Putin, that radically uh, underestimated the the the, the, uh, the Ukrainian resistance. He radically overestimated the quality of the military of the Russian military. Uh, he thought it was going to be a slam dunk in like three days, and so he made an enormous mistake. In terms of those critical resources, it's going to provide added huge impetus to Canada and the U.S. and countries that have these resources to develop them, because we've been for the last five years, I'll be very blunt, under the Trudeau government, mining has been right behind oil and gas as being uh, an industry or a set of industries that are not popular, you know, because they dig things out of the ground and they bespoil the earth and that sort of thing. And uh, I think that this is going to change that whole mentality in the government. We can't uh, adopt that holier-than-thou Boy Scout attitude. Yes, we can mine environmentally, but we've got to do it. In terms of Russia, they're going to uh, again, those those pro- products, I'm not saying they'll never be sold. Of course they'll be sold, but they're going to be sold probably at a discount, and they're not going to, it's going to be very difficult to continue doing business. And I want to put one huge caveat in all this, Bill. It's a huge caveat in all my predictions, so nobody writes me in two years or three years' time when everything <laughs> has changed. If Putin is overthrown, and I'm not saying he will be, I'm not making that prediction, but if he is, because finally the Russian elites say this guy is just causing just absolute chaos and destruction and for us, the Russians, and if they overthrow him and say, look, we had a terrible mistake, we made a terrible mistake, not just president change, but true regime change, meaning we're going to change from the old autocratic uh, system and go to a more 
Western-style, European-style mixed economy, I could see those sanctions coming up much more quickly, and then it returns to the international community of nations. But that will not happen so long as Putin or Putin-like clones are in power in Russia. I don't believe it will happen in the next 10 or 15 years if there's Putin or Putin clones running the country. But if they have some kind of a revolution, a revolution, that produces regime change. So you have a different type of country, different type of rulers, different types of laws that are not doing what Putin did for the last 20 years, then that will be a game changer. And then you will see resources coming back onto the world markets and, and minerals and so forth. So it really hap- it depends on what goes on inside Russia. And in the next three months, six months, nine months, 12 months, whatever, do they finally decide enough is enough? We've got to get rid of this guy. This is not the way we can run our country going forward for decades into the future. We will see, uh, as always. Ian, thanks so much for this. Great talking with you again today. My pleasure. Thank you. Ian Lee, of course, uh, Associate Professor at the Sprott School of Business at Carleton University. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.